Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Boss Podcast. I am your host Kirk Bailey, bringing you talks from Boss Conferences every week. This week we welcome Alicia Navarro to the podcast with her talk on growing and scaling a culture with limited funds. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Scaling is a challenge which presents itself to any company starting out. Further to this, cash flow is the single greatest reason companies fail in the beginning. So how do you scale whilst remaining respectful of your budget? Alicia is a serial tech entrepreneur with a passion for product, brand, design and culture. She founded Skimlinks in 2007 and was CEO for 11 years, growing it to be the leading content e-commerce monetization platform for online publishers globally before it was acquired in 2020 by Connexity. You can now find her in her next business, Flown, on a mission to bring deep work principles into how we work and live. Happy listening. Lovely to be here. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm quite blown away by what an animated and, and communal uh, atmosphere this is. So thank you for having me. Um, I'm here to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart uh, and the thing that I'm probably the most uh, proud of uh, having done, which is how to grow and scale a team and a culture and how to do it on a limited budget. Let me tell you a little bit about, I guess, me and why I'm here and, and, uh, and, and why I have the qualifications at all to be standing here in front of you all. So my name's Alethea. Um, I, seven years ago, started a company called Skimlinks. This is my co-founder, Joe. Um, and uh, I, I, for those who don't know, Skimlinks, um, it's, a, it's not a very sexy company. It's not front-end. It's, uh, it's a monetization technology for websites. Um, and uh, when I started it seven years ago, um, I, for the first year, was doing it pretty much on the, uh, my own savings, money that I uh, got from my boyfriend at the time, and some friends and family, and a bank loan. Um, so for the first year, I had you know, almost nothing. Uh, and even when we raised our seed round, you know, we still were doing um, a lot with very, very little. And, uh, but I always knew from the beginning that um, to build a great company, um, and not just one that kind of delivered results, but to build one that would make you want to wake up and go to work every day, you needed to hire a great team and to build a great culture around it. And I think it's become the, the thing that I think of as my role as CEO is the most important thing that I do. Um, and oh, I have to press it harder than I think. <laughs> it's not as easy an interface. Okay, here we go. So you know, so what have we what have we done right, and why why am I here? So um, when I started the company, it was obviously just me, uh, and now um, we have a company. There's 70 people currently employed in the company, based mostly in London, although we have a team in San Francisco and uh, a few scattered around working remotely. Um, and uh, why? And you know, one, I'm very proud of it. This is the this is the picture that they. Um, did for at me as a surprise on the day of our seventh birthday as a company. You can see me at the bottom here <laughs> uh, with my co-founder, and every single one of these is uh, an individual picture of one of the team, one of our team members, done showing a kind of intrinsic personality trait of them, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So uh, that is actually our CTO. <laughs> and very funny event that happened on Christmas party when he got dead to do the Kate Upton skinny, sexy dance. He has never forgiven us. Uh, for <laughs> anyway, 
Um, but the thing that I'm the most proud of is that it's not just a team of 70 people, because I've, I've, I've talked to a few of you guys here, and I, you know, I am not by far the biggest company or you know, the most successful by any stretch. But I do think that we've managed to build um, a, a brand as a employer and a brand as a company um, of our culture that is uh, really well known. It is the reason that people stay in our company and the reason that people join. Um, it's to the point where even our cleaner, our, our office cleaner who comes in every night, says that her favorite point of her day each day is when she comes into our office because of what we've kind of created there. So what I want to kind of talk about today is how I've gone from hiring, you know, from, from nothing and hired a team of 70 fabulous people and um, the tricks and, uh, and tips that we uh, did along the way to do that with very little money and how to build a culture simultaneously to that. Um, yeah, so it started off as just a very small team and then became a very large uh, team over the last kind of seven years. So I'm not doing this right, am I? Here we go. So what is culture? And I, I think it's useful to kind of talk about this a little bit before I talk about the hiring, because I think that they are very entwined. And although most of this talk is going to be around how to hire and how to hire well and how to build a team, I think that fundamental to that is understanding what culture is. And I, I don't know if you've ever read, a, have you read the Ben Horowitz book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things? If you haven't, you must. It is the book that is the only business book that I have cried while reading. It is that powerful. Um, but he, he has a really great section on um, building a culture. And he says, and I'm, I'm going to be paraphrasing this, culture is not the fact that you have a ping pong table or the fact that you have massages or the fact that you can bring your dog to work. They're perks. A culture is the, the systems and processes and organizational design elements that you have that institutionalize or, or um, create a, a set of values that then self-perpetuate beyond. And so how do you kind of build these what are the core, core values that are really important to you in your culture? How do they help produce the company goals that you want? And what are the ways that you can make that intrinsic? And the, the story that he tells, he tells a couple about what culture is. But I find them, I find them really interesting. He said that um, for Amazon, uh, Amazon's uh, you know, culture is all about, uh, they really want to create an environment of um, uh, being careful with money. You know, If they want to grow a company where it's all about being the leader in, um, uh, in, in cost-price cost products, you need to create a culture that also embraces that. So for all their employees, he says, they all have uh, doors rather than desks. They buy doors from home base and they put legs on them. And, and that means that every person that walks in and starts their job at Amazon says, why do I have a desk for a door? And the answer from the team members is, well, because here at Amazon, we really want to kind of be the cost-price you know, cost leader. And so we really want to instill that in everything that we do. So it's a way that they permeated that kind of cultural element. He also talks about how Facebook, uh, never took off the signs of uh, sun off their doors so that they always, you know, every time you open up a meeting room door, you will always be reminded of what you will become if you do not move quickly every day. Now, keep in mind that I, I think that the other thing is you can't actually on day one go, right, what is the culture I want to create and how do I do it from day one? A lot of this becomes something that you recognize retrospectively. And a lot of it is a direct reflection about who you are as the kind of leader and, uh, and those first few employees that you hire. And that's why hiring is so important, because those first few hires are really critical. Now, for, for us, and I'll I, I talk about this a, li a little bit. Oh, thank you. What the previous, actually, what I forgot to mention, for, for us at Skimlinks, um, we actually were very lucky and were able to quite organically almost create a name for our company culture. And that is this concept of skim love. Let me explain what that means. Um, 
Skimlinks is a terrible name. I mean, it really is. As a company name, I'm embarrassed about it, but it grew very naturally because we, it was a pivot from a previous company that I had called Skimbit, which was also a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> but it just became this kind of habit in the company to prefix everything with skim. So you didn't have an intern, you had a skim turn. You didn't have you know, a baby, you had a skim baby. It just was a thing. you know. And so um, we, there was this kind of very natural thing that happened once when we were celebrating wins. And we were all on Yammer together kind of talking. And, uh, and there was this, how do I describe it? Uh, it's, it's a very difficult concept to explain because it's, it's almost you know, a, a transcendent, transcendent thing. But, as a, as a company, we um, very much valued uh, being kind to each other and that if we were going to win, it was more fun winning because we were good people than because we were the cheapest or the fastest or the most aggressive. We wanted to win business and we wanted to do good stuff just because it made us feel good and it was a nice way to kind of work. So we called that skim love. So for instance, if someone uh, celebrated, uh, won a customer because they were really, really nice and that, that, that customer was so impressed with who we were as a company that they chose us instead of our competitors, we would celebrate it and write the end, hash skim love. When someone in the team helped someone else, out, someone else out in the team and it was just a really nice thing that they did, they praised them on Yammer and said again, hash skim love. And I just started to embody the, the kind of thing about our company that was really special, and, and now it's so important to us that it is uh, on neon wall, neon letters in our coffee area when you first walk in the office. Um, it's a really, really core part of our identity, and I didn't force it. It wasn't something that I came in on day one and said, right, everyone, we're going to be talking about Skim Love. This is the way it's going to work. It was something that happened very, very organically, and, uh, and, and, but I went with it, and that's kind of what the next slide talks about. What I then did is I broke it down into what the letters represented and uh, tried to describe what it was to be, you know, what does skim love actually mean? What does it mean when you're hiring someone? What does it mean when you are um, looking for someone to uh, add to the team? So we broke it down. For those who can't read it, I'll read it out. The S stands for sparkle, you know, the fire in the eyes, that glint that kind of makes someone feel like they're passionate and excited. K was kick-ass, because you want them to be really good at what they do. I is inventive, you want them to be kind of a hacker. Um, master of our domain, you wanted them to be the best at their job. Likeable, obvious. Open-minded, uh, which is quite important to us. We, we, we have a female CEO, we have a female head of technology, we've got gay people, we've got people from different nationalities. We only wanted to hire people that were very open-minded, that were not easily offended, um, and that kind of embraced diversity. That was really key. Vocal, again, a really important thing for us. I don't like people that, uh, hierarchies are, are useful for some things, but not if it squashes the opinions of others. So we kind of celebrated people being vocal. And lastly, entrepreneurial. We only hired people that wanted to be entrepreneurs themselves one day. Anyway, the point of raising this is that um, I, once I recognized that we had something special, I wanted to understand what it was and find ways that I could perpetuate it via kind of organizational means. So I'll talk about what some of those were. And in fact, the rest of this talk is just going to be examples of what I've seen work. And it's interesting, because I've done this talk um, a couple of years ago, a, a similar version of it. And actually, over the last few years, I've seen a lot of other companies try things and, 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 and not work, or try things and work. So I, I've, I've put that into this talk, and, uh, and I'll make it a very kind of example-driven one. So let's break it down. Why, uh, actually, before I progress, I'd love to know, out of people in the room, put your hand up if, you have, if your company is sort of 10 people or less. Okay, uh, how about sort of 10 to 50? And then more than 50? Oh good, so, okay, it's a really good mix. Um, so what, what I'm gonna talk about now is 
the difference is uh, how is hiring different when you're a very small company and you don't have a lot of money, and I'll talk later on how to hire when you're a much bigger company. So hiring in the early days. Cost matters a lot more, obviously. Uh, you can't hire the best, most experienced person on day one, so you, you have to find someone that hasn't done their job before and that you can pick up for much, much less. Um, culture fit matters more. So in those early days, I would deliberately not hire someone that might have been just the perfect fit for the job if they were even remotely not right from a cultural perspective. Now that we're a much bigger company, I'm much um, less, if they're like 20% off culture and, and they're perfect for the job, we might still go with them. But in those early days when you're like 10 people or less, the culture fit is one of the most important things because they are the building blocks of what your culture will become from then on. A sense of ownership matters more. Ooh, I've gone noisier. <laughs> sense of ownership matters more. So in those early days, you want someone that is joining because they love the idea of being part of that early stage of a company. You do not want someone in your first 10 people that is doing it because it's just their job, that's doing it because they, they don't feel any sense of entitlement. You want those first 10 people to feel that they own this child because let me tell you, in seven years' time, they're going to be your senior managers and you want them still to be around and still perpetuating the culture that you start in those early days. And then... General skills matter more in those early days. So now, these days, I hire like a very specialized skill and they do this one job. But in those early days, you hire generalists and people that are not fussy or, or precious. Because that person that I've hired to do account management will also do support, will also do office management, will do everything. And you want people that don't mind because they feel that sense of ownership. You don't mind what job you do. You've got a title, but actually it doesn't really matter. You do All of you do whatever you need to do to get the job done. And so these are the kind of the four things that really uh, are important when you're in those first uh, days of hiring. And so how do you hire? I get asked a lot, how do you find that first developer? How do you find those kind of uh, first few hires? And we did, again, we had no money. We were doing things in the kind of cheapest possible way. So we, you know, we couldn't even afford recruiters. So we were using, um, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal these days, but back then it was very odd to be using, using things like Gumtree or Craigslist. But we would be going to events. We would be uh, kind of the usual things that you would think of. But when you're very, very early stage and you've got no money, it's looking at um, grad, graduate fairs or uh, job boards that you would not uh, expect to uh, be using at that stage. Um, but that made a big deal in those early days when, again, we had no money. We made it very hard to apply. Um, the problem with uh, putting a job ad up on Gumtree or on Craigslist is that you'll get 50, 70 applications, most of which are just people clearly that have just pressed copy-paste, copy-paste, send, copy-paste, send. And so what we would used to do is ask at the end um, a, a couple of difficult questions or even just tell us about how you would do this, tell us how you would do that. And it was uh, amazingly good at filtering out people that clearly did not care. Um, okay. One of, this is one of my favorite things uh, to do, and I do it deliberately because, as I said, um, open-mindedness is very important cultural value for us. So I will always swear in an interview. Uh, I'll throw in a couple of really dirty words or uh, some dirty jokes, or I'll ask them what their favorite joke is. And it's nice. I, I like doing that because, A, you want them to kind of see how they react, and you want them to kind of be very obviously someone that can handle a little bit of, um, a little bit of filth. Again, if you've read... <laughs> The Ben Horowitz book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, in those early days, it's actually important to have a culture that values a little bit of, uh, not depravity, but, you know, a little bit of... <laughs> you need to be able to swear a lot around your employees in those early days, I think. And, uh, and it's nice to kind of weed out the people that don't deal with that very well. 
<laughs> I once told no, I'm not. I once told a really, 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 really bad joke, which the person didn't last very long. <laughs> anyway, um, we also look for things like open source um, involvement for engineers, particularly. Again, for most of you, this isn't that big a surprise, but at the time, it was a really big deal for us because there was a lot of people out there that could code and that were, you know, seemingly good engineers. But what we looked for entirely were engineers um, that I didn't really care about their job so much, but I loved how involved they were in open source projects or on projects on the side. One of my favorite stories is um, my second engineer. Um, I uh, had put the job ad up on Gumtree and, uh, and it was just for an engineer. And I had a bunch of applications. We interviewed a few people, but there was this one application uh, from a Hungarian guy who um, his, his CV consisted literally of his name and then three URLs. <laughs> so I was about to throw it away going, okay, this is clearly not a serious applicant. But then I checked out where those three URLs were. And he had actually conceived of, designed, built, and in some cases had sold these quite clever kind of social media automation tools that were really quite clever, clever concepts that he had done from beginning to end. So I thought, oh, okay, this guy is clearly really passionate about coding that he has done this on his own without even uh, needing to do so for the sake of a job. So I brought him in and he, it was the funniest job interview because he had never been to a job interview before. He hardly spoke English. He had dreadlocks to his ass. And he, in his job interview, I asked him, so what do you think about my company? And uh, this was the pre-Skin Links one. And he said, yeah, I don't really get it, but you know, whatever you like. <laughs> he was really awkward. It was very funny because then I, he left it, but there was something about his eyes, and I just thought, you know what, he's got the sparkle, he's got the yes from the skim love. So I called him and I, and I told him later that day, you've got the job, you can come back. Uh, and he did, and I put him to work straight away that same day. Years later, he tells me, do you know what? <laughs> when he called me back, I was drunk with my friends, and I couldn't understand what you said on the phone. All I heard was, come back. I didn't hear that you said I had the job. So I came back, and you immediately put me to work while drunk. But I did your Facebook integration that day. <laughs> Bless. Hi, future entrepreneurs. This is uh, one that has recently caused me a lot of grief because the problem with hiring future entrepreneurs is one day they decide to become entrepreneurs and they leave you. I just had one of my favorite employees leave after five and a half years to go start his own company. What can he do? But it does mean that they stick with you for a long time and that they value um, the experience more than the salary you can pay them. And this was a really key thing for us. We deliberately went and hired people that when I asked them, what do you want to do in five, 10 years? They said, I want to start my own company. And, and that meant, A, they were going to be much more used to the ups and downs, which inevitably come with, with a small company. And two, they value um, the learning. And so the commitment that me and my co-founder made from the very beginning is that what we would, not, you know, we wouldn't be able to give people the salaries that could compete, but we could be really open about our learnings, what we did right, what we did wrong, um, to the point where we, you know, whenever we do a fundraise now, we take the whole team through the term sheet and explain every term and why we negotiated that and what was the difficulty with that piece of negotiation. Uh, we tell people the things that don't work. Um, it, it, we tell people what happens in the board meetings. Not everything, but enough so that um, as people, employees in my company, they are now in a position much, much better than I was when I first started to one day do their own company. Um, and they love the ride, they love the journey, um, they're kind of addicted to the highs and lows themselves, and that makes hiring on a budget extraordinarily better. Um, 
this makes a lot more sense if you're in Europe. <laughs> I think it's harder to do here. But in, in Europe, we're, we're quite lucky because we have essentially the whole of, uh, of Europe to hire from, uh, which is great. And one of the things that we've started to do now, even though we have now, uh, we're not uh, as poor as we were seven years ago, we now have raised several rounds of funding. But hiring is still tough because uh, of of the scarcity of great engineers. So we now deliberately look all over Europe and pay to bring them over to London. But back then, we didn't have that much money. Instead, what we did do is pay to become a visa sponsor. And so we were then able to hire um, people not just from Europe, but even from India, from Australia, from the US. Um, and you can pick up people that are really excited about the idea of working in London um, for in their 20s, et cetera. So that, that, that was a really effective way for us to get people that we might not otherwise have been able to get and attract them, not with the money, but with the lure of being sponsored to live in a new country. Um, the same, I guess, works in the US. I think that with Entrepreneur's Visa, it's a little bit easier. I know, I mean, actually, I've gotten a lot of US visas for my team, and it's not easy. Um, but if you can look at fields, I think uh, that can sometimes make hiring on a budget easier. OK. <laughs> Here we go. Personalized packages. Um, this was a really big thing for us in the early days. Again, we didn't have a lot of money, but what we could do is listen uh, when we were interviewing people. And so we would deliberately ask them a little bit about themselves, about their family, their interests. And when we gave them their offer, we, I mean, the salary was never very high, but we always put in a kind of special perk that was deliberately customized to what the person had said they loved during the interview. So, for instance, you can't see these pictures very well, but one, guy, one person said that they loved rock climbing, so we gave them a, a one-year membership to a local rock climbing centre. Another person said that they loved to travel, so we gave them an EasyJet um, voucher for £500. Another one said that they uh, you know, had a kid, so we gave them membership to Gymboree. Another one said they were just moving house, so we gave them a um, voucher for IKEA. And someone said that they loved animals, so we gave them a membership to the zoo. Um, <laughs> and these are you know, silly little things, but they really show to the person that, that you care and that you really want them specifically to join your team. Um, and it does wonders for both hiring and, and um, competing against bigger, badder companies that don't necessarily uh, give as customized packages. Um, and it also creates um, a really great cultural blossom for that person when they start. Doing something wrong. Here we go. So there's this thing that uh, that we call lethification. So my name is Alethea. Lethe is my nickname, and uh, there's this process that we call lethification. So my co-founder will say, "Okay, it's time for some lethification." So what that will mean is that we've done the offer, we've gone through the interview process, but now it's time to really show them some love. So I'll write them an email that goes beyond kind of the job and it starts talking about the vision, what we're trying to do here, why they're the most important person for this role. Um, and it's very hard for people to say no to me when, <laughs> when, I, when I do that. Um, and it's worked wonders. We have gotten people that I thought were so far out of our league because I put in so much effort into really showing that they were an integral member of what we were trying to build. Um, and I, I recommend that as, a, again, a way of hiring awesome people on a budget. You'll be amazed at how some people will drop their salary requirements when they feel that they are going to change your life. Okay. Aim for a rainbow family. Um, so I, <laughs> I think this is one of the, I, I don't know how kind of common it is here, but I think many kind of UK companies that I've seen, and even 
West Coast companies um, here in the US will still be kind of mostly US or mostly UK people. And it's been something that we deliberately have tried not to do. We deliberately um, love hiring people from different nationalities, different sexes, different everything, because I think it creates um, one, an electric environment. When you've got people that are all so different, you look around, there's different accents, different faces, it creates something really special in a culture, something about the openness, the willingness to listen, the, the understanding that great insights come in lots of different shapes and packages. Um, and I think it's a fundamental thing that we embraced at the beginning that's become a real defining characteristic of, of our company. And just to give you a sense, in our team of 70 people, we've got over 21 nationalities, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, we also, uh, I, I should have actually made one person half, but yeah. <laughs> We, uh, we've got a pretty good ratio for a high-tech company. It's 35% uh, you know, women, and this is, and you know, not all of them are just in kind of sales and marketing. Most of the women we've got have got computing science degrees, even if they're not engineers themselves. Um, and it's, again, a wonderful environment. You walk in, and it's not just a bunch of you know, boys in the corner. It's, it's a real co-ed environment. Um, you know, I, the, the, the founder's a, a woman. The, um, our VP engineering is a woman. Our head of marketing is a woman. Um, it's a really diverse workplace. And what that does is create, again, an environment where people want to work. Uh, women are attracted to working at our company because it's a really safe embracing place for them, and men like you because the women are hot. You know, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it does, you know, you want to create an environment where people want to come to work every day, and, and they create relationships and bonds that are more, um, are more than just their nine to five existence. Um, another thing that I have learned over the years is how to be really good at, especially in these early days, of um, being open-minded about who you hire for a job and how they kind of progress through their careers. So let me take these are going to be four examples of people in my company, but you can see how um, unexpected a career path they've had. So um, this, this person was a really funny one because uh, I decided one day that I needed um, a kind of PA um, and uh, I didn't have time to kind of put a job ad up for it. So my co-founder's wife uh, runs a fashion PR company. And he said, oh, my wife is always getting like, offers for people to be an intern. Why don't we just see if one of those wants to do this job? So he literally picked the top one off the pile. And it ended up being this, this woman, this girl that had, uh, used to, was a blogger on the side. And we thought, huh, she'd be all right. Anyway, it turns out she was. She came on first as a kind of PA, PR person. She then was so good that she kind of became a communications manager. And then eventually, she became our marketing director and was with us for years before, for health reasons, having to to leave to go back to New Zealand. Um, but that was a really unexpected career path, and I would have never chosen her to be our marketing director on day one. Um, but it's about finding the right person that has the sparkle, the, the kick-ass, the, all, the, all those letters I talked about in the first place, and, and really kind of identifying where their talents lie and created a career path that made the most of those. Oops, done to you there. Um, this one here is one of our current product managers who started life as uh, she was a computing science graduate with no job experience. She'd just finished her degree. So she came on as an intern, and she was literally categorizing websites. She saw a lot of pornography <laughs> her first few weeks on the job because her job was to look at like, the top you know, 10,000 sites in the world and kind of categorize them as potential customers for us or not. Um, 
There's more porn out there than you would think. It's amazing. Uh, she then moved on to, uh, to be in our biz dev team, and she did that for a few years. And then you know, we realized that because she, you know, her skill set was more on the techie side, we moved her into product management. And again, on, on day one, we would have never hired her as a product manager, but she's grown into that role. We then have um, one of our current QA managers, who again started as a computing science graduate, started doing categorization as well. It was a real common thing for us. Uh, moved into operations and then moved into QA. And then finally, you know, one of the guys in my team I think could be the future CEO of the company and again started as a grad with no experience. So again, when you have no money and you can't hire someone who's done that job before, you learn to be very good at finding the, the gems of specialness in people that you can kind of grow and develop into other roles. And it's hard because what's going to differentiate one CV from another? So we did things like look for personality in their CV. Did someone kind of say something in a funny way? Did they show that they had really interesting extracurricular activities? Were they involved in some societies? Whatever is important to you and your company, but be, find, find a way to be good at identifying those gems and, uh, and identifying what they're good at, what their passions are, and developing career paths that work for them. And it's been really successful for us. Out of 70 people, I just counted this last night to kind of make sure these numbers are still current, 15% of our current employees joined as interns, and 18% started as grads. And, uh, and these are now, most of these are quite senior people in our company now, um, and, uh, and will one day be, and are now also hiring interns to work for them now. Uh, and it's fantastic. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we could never have hired the kind of caliber of employees that we'd wanted to uh, if they hadn't have started uh, as interns or grads themselves. Some of the things that I've learned that didn't work well, you know, it's not all, not all uh, you know, roses and, and blossoms. Out of the seven employees that I said we have now, you know, 21 or so have resigned over the last seven years, and another 20 of those we've fired. Um, so we've, you know, we, we haven't always got it right. And one of the things I think we've realized is when we hire too many or too quickly and don't spend enough time uh, with induction, you know, you can actually <laughs> expect some churn. And I think that we, you know, I think we realized that there was just one, I was doing some numbers last night to kind of see the patterns. And I saw that there was uh, a year where this one, most years, um, sorry, let me say this the right way. I looked at each cohort of employees and I looked at how many of them were still around today and how many had resigned. And there was this one year where it was the biggest number of, uh, of people that had resigned or were fired. And it was also the year that we had hired the fastest. And I think probably had spent the least amount of time on kind of cultural induction. Um, and it's, it's very true, I think. The second that you hire too quickly, you don't pay enough attention to the cultural side of things. Um, it, it can be very disruptive to the company. It can be very difficult for the employees. And, uh, and even now, when we are hiring very, very quickly at the moment, we spend more, more time than we've ever spent before on induction, on team building, on team activities, um, because otherwise you'll, you'll see this problem. You'll, you'll see people that are not attached enough to your company and therefore uh, are much, uh, much quicker to leave if they feel that anything's not working quite right. Create traditions. So this is one of my, my favorite things. Um, I think this is a, something that you, again, that starts quite organically. It's not something that you set out on day one going, right, I'm going to create this tradition now and create this tradition. They, they happen very organically. Um, so in our case, one Friday, for example, someone was playing Go Your Own Way by Fleetwood Mac. And, uh, and one of our engineers put, you know, oh, God, not this song again, hash Fleetwood Friday. 
And it became a thing somehow organically that now every Friday uh, at 6.30 or 5.30 when, when we've done our tech demos, we, uh, we play Go Your Own Way. It's just this silly thing, because it's about breakups. It's not even really a relevant thing. But we've kind of embraced it as our, as our company anthem about how if you're going to do it, if you're going to make it, if you're going to get somewhere, let's do it our way so that we feel proud at the end of it. And it's become a, a thing that really identifies us, that my team now play of their own accord on, the, on our Christmas parties. It's taken a life of its own. Um, and I think it's a really, uh, it's something that I've been very encouraging of because I'm aware of how cohesive um, something like music can, can make a culture feel. Uh, we deliberately spend money on um, getting teams together. Uh, so we now have people in San Francisco and, and all over the place, but every year, um, no matter what, we fly everyone to the same place. And uh, we do it for, at the moment every, every Christmas and summer, but we might just make it Christmas now. Um, and we actually now even take them, uh, uh, well, sorry, we do treasure hunts. So we uh, create this kind of city or town-wide uh, treasure hunt. And then for the last two years, we've actually done it in foreign cities. We, we took the whole team first to Slovenia and then to, uh, to Rotterdam and did uh, treasure hunts there. And it's fantastic for new employees. We would actually bring along people that hadn't yet started but were due to start in the next few weeks. And it was an awesome way to create a sense of adventure and inventiveness and, um, and, and, and team bonding that really carried on throughout the rest of the year. Um, related to that, and I haven't included it here because uh, it's not necessarily a tradition, but we always all, um, spending money to bring people together is always money well spent. So we have a, a large number of team members in San Francisco, um, but we regularly will send people um, both to the San Francisco office or, or bring the San Francisco team over to London. It costs a lot, but um, the, the benefit that you get in terms of team cohesiveness, this sense of shared culture and shared experience, it's absolutely worth it. Uh, and we've got, you know, silly things. I'm sure you guys all do the same thing, like welcome questions where we get everyone to say two truths, one lie, which can be a great way to kind of get people to know the quirkier parts of a person's history. And, uh, and I've already covered the skin love sign um, side of things. But it's I'm a massive believer in the power of narrative and the power of stories as a means of creating uh, a bond and creating a culture that permeates beyond even you being in the room. Um, make startup education part of the overall package. Again, if you are going to hire future entrepreneurs, one of the things they'll get out of being part of your team is learning about what, uh, how to start a company themselves one day. Um, so as I said, we're very, very open about uh, the fundraising processes that we go through, our financials, our CFO will stand up every Friday and go through the numbers, what's working, what's not working. Um, we, we've just been doing a fundraise, for example, and I'll stand up and tell the team who I've pitched to, how that's gone, what works, what didn't work. And uh, the team uh, love that. And a lot of them say, gosh, you know, previous companies I've worked at don't do that. This level of transparency and trust is incredible. And it creates an immense sense of loyalty and cohesiveness. Celebrate wins. Um, again, as a technology company, um, we are, are very keen that we remind everyone in the company that we are a technology company, that we are a product company. And every Friday, for example, we do tech demos where, uh, or now we call it skim and tell, as you can tell. We use skim in front of everything. Um, and, uh, and it's great. It gets the engineers who are normally kind of the ones sitting in the corner kind of hiding from the world. But on every Friday, they have to stand up and tell the team what they have worked on, what great things that they've built. And it's a one, and we all celebrate it. There are, there's cheers, chinks of glasses, and everyone gets a real sense of celebration at the things that we build. 
because what I'm trying to do is create a culture where we celebrate technology, where we love building great products. And to perpetuate that, I've created this tradition where we celebrate technology wins. Another thing that I think is incredibly important that people don't tend to do uh, is hire internal HR uh, early on. So about, I think we did 20, we probably should have done it at 15. So hire an internal HR or team development person. And they're not just about hiring. They're about having um, a person that your team feels that they can speak with about their own problems, that worry about team packages, that worry about team development, that worry about getting people onto courses and so on. Um, it's incredibly valuable and uh, the team really respond to, to knowing that you're investing in them, in their career development and their team happiness. Even though we're still seven, we're 70 people now, still to this day, every person that joins the company will be interviewed by either me or my co-founder. Um, and it's silly because at, by the time they get to us, the team have already said that they really want to hire this person, so it's often a formality, but, um, but we still have veto power if, if we really don't see them working. And uh, it's an incredibly important process to make that person really know, uh, well, there's, there's two things there. One is, um, if I believe so strongly in the importance of culture and creating a cohesive, um, exciting team, I want to be sure that every person that walks in and becomes a Skimlinks employee has that special something. Um, so we're out there looking for that. And there have been a number of times when, when I pull the rug, even if everyone else said that they wanted to. It's that important. And then secondly, it's a chance to sell. So if, again, this is you know, in increasingly now when it's so hard to hire engineers, I'll get put in at the final round to do my lethification as part of the interview process. So I'll go into this poor little data engineer who's kind of timid and scared, and I'll be there telling him about how amazing it is and how important, you know, what our mission is and why this is important and why you should join. Um, and it's wonderful. They, they, it just, it, it, it's, it's wonderful to see that these guys are so um, necessary to the company's mission that you know the CEO is taking time out of the day to hang out with them and talk to them. I don't actually interview them. I just talk to them about their life, their aspirations, and, uh, and it's incredibly powerful. And you, you get the engineers you know, a month later starting, and they still come up to your desk and say, oh, hello. And I love that. I don't sit, by the way, in an office. I sit right in the middle on a normal desk because I want, again, uh, the whole company to feel uh, approachable um, to me and to each other. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time on hiring and retention. Probably about 30% of my time is spent either hiring or interviewing or thinking about team culture or thinking about processes or thinking about ways that we can make our team happy. It's probably the most important part of what I do each day and continues to be and I think will be going forward. This is a really important thing that I have seen a lot of um, other CEO friends of mine perhaps fail at and that's not recognizing that the culture of a company is a direct reflection of the CEO's personality. And that if you want to create a certain type of culture, you have to live and breathe that every day yourself. Um, you know, I see a lot of, um, I'm not going to name names here, but a lot of uh, you know, CEOs that really want their team to work hard and you know, work you know, 10 hours a day and you know, really care about things, but they don't rock up to the office till 11, and they're doing five other things on the side, and their team know that, and there's no way you're going to create a, you know, a culture of excellence and passion and dedication if you're not the one that's living and breathing it and showing it yourself every day. And I really, I, I think this is one of the most important things. And I think if you ask you know, anyone in my team that they will say the same. Like a lot of them, and this sounds so vain, but it's not. They, they work hard because, and they care because they see I work hard and I care and they know that that's important and they're here because they've joined because they want to be part of that mission. 
And so I think as a CEO uh, or you know, any senior manager, you are incredibly responsible for setting your own company's culture by the way that you act, the way that you hold yourself, um, and the kind of expectations you put on yourself. And, and uh, progressing along that is making yourself someone that others want to work for as well. So I spend you know, a huge amount of my time now talking, and it's one of those silly things because I actually don't think that, you know, I, I don't think I'm anything special. I, I'm, you know, constantly, you know, critical of myself, but you have to create a brand for the, co the company that you work for that makes other people want to join and want to join, uh, want to be part of your story. Um, and, and so you put yourself out there. Uh, and I've spoken to a couple of other people here today that, you know, recognize the importance of that as well, that if you want to create uh, a great culture, you've got to be very um, external with uh, talking about your mission, and that's going to help attract people to uh, work for you. We do a lot of sponsoring of events. Now, this is obviously something that is easy to do once you have some money, um, but there's still some things you can do without money. So this weekend, actually, when I get back to London, we're hosting a Stemets hackathon, which is, um, for those who don't know, Stemets is um, a group of uh, females in technology, and so we really want to create, you know, hire a lot more female engineers, so we're hosting uh, a bunch of women uh, uh, hacking at our offices this weekend. Um, similarly, we sponsored uh, a woman to study um, at a coding school, and uh, we wanted to hire some great data scientists, so we sponsored a uh, data science conference. Some, some of these things can be expensive, but as I said, the hackathon is not, and it's awesome for creating um, a reputation and brand for hiring a certain type of people. This is an interesting one. Um, one of my most recent employees um, is a failed entrepreneur. And I tell you, failed entrepreneurs are the best people to hire, if you can. <laughs> they're awesome because they, they believe in you. They kind of now need money, so they're kind of really eager to kind of get back into the workforce. <laughs> and they're really eager to learn what they did wrong. And anyway, he's, he's great. But one of the things he said to me, we, we spent, this is, our, this is a photo of our office. Um, it's, it's beautiful. We spent a lot of money on this recently. And, this, this, uh, this guy in my team said, I was kind of amazed that you would spend that much money. I know in our company, we would never, you know, we would never have spent that, you know, a couple of desks and, you know, let, spend your money on something else. But now he says, I recognize why you did it. And it's because if you, I don't know if you've ever read The Architecture of Happiness. It's a really great book by Elaine de Botton. And it's all about how um, the degree to which culture and mood um, are a direct reflection of the environment that you're in. And so if you want to create happy people, you create a happy physical environment. Um, and it's an awesome book if you haven't read it. But it really kind of inspired me. And so we deliberately spent more money than we probably should have um, on creating um, a really, really beautiful space. And what you can see on the pillars here is um, we, we have these things called the three pillars, which are the way that we kind of frame the way that we work. So one's um, building great technology, one's creating um, uh, engagement, and the other is uh, driving revenues. It's, there's a lot more behind it, but at a, at a high level, that's it. And so what we've done is we've gotten um, our designer to create these beautiful uh, murals that represent each of those and paint them on the pillars. Ironically, we have three pillars in our office. It couldn't be more perfect. Um, and so we, we've gone and invested in these beautiful um, offices that people love to come in. They, they, they feel inspired to think and to dream. Now, again, if you don't have a lot of money, you obviously can't spend a lot on a great office, but you can still spend a lot on finding... Or, you don't have to spend a lot of money to still create a great environment, one with lots of light, one that has good communal areas, one that smells good. Smell is one of those underrated things. 
In fact, I think the next slide shows I deliberately placed, the first thing that you see when you walk into our office is the kind of cafe bar that has a toaster right in the middle. Because I think that the smell of toast is one of the most beautiful smells for creating a sense of home, homeness and comfort and, and safety. And I think that I, you know, our office always smells of toast. It's wonderful. <laughs> you can see it there. So this is what happens when you walk in. You walk in and there's a coffee machine going, so again, it's a smell of coffee and it's a smell of toast that permeates the entire office. Um, and it's little things like that that make an office feel like home and makes people want to work late nights. Uh, I've covered this already. Create visual reminders of your culture. Um, now, this is something I've done more retrospectively. It wasn't something that on day one I thought, right, what's my culture? What are the letters? How do I draw those? But it's something that I deliberately did a couple of years into it and thought, okay, what, what is it that we've created here? What is it that has organically come about because of the kind of people that I've hired? And how do I kind of visualize that or put some kind of uh, memorable structure around it? And so we've got a, a wonderful visual designer in the company that's that created these beautiful murals and, uh, and painted them on the walls and then painted them on our skim love signs. And there's a beautiful kind of visual language that permeates our office, our website, our, our um, uh, what do you call it, swag products that we give at conferences. And again, it's something that the team feel this sense of bond uh, unity with. They, they are proud to be identified by this kind of visual language. It's these little things that you never think about, but that actually are so important to create um, a great culture and to attract people to work for you. So what are the kind of challenges of hiring when you uh, have no money? So this is, you know, I've talked about why, how you can hire cheaply in those early days, but it doesn't come without problems. You saved on money, but now you actually have to spend a lot of time overseeing. And I have to say, that's been one of the hardest things that, that I've had to go through with, you know, with, with a young team. You know, for a long time, the average age of our company was under the age of 25, which is exhausting. <laughs> oh my God, these people need constant affirmation and, you know, <laughs> what's in it for me? And, you know, it's, it's draining. They're very energetic, but it, it comes at a price. So there is a lot of time that you have to now spend overseeing, guiding, reviewing, <laughs> calming down, you know. But it, 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 you know, it's worth it, but it's hard. This is another really tricky one. Eventually, you have to replace them. You know, that great CTO that you hired who was an engineer and you called him a CTO because, um, you know, you, you needed to do that. One day, you're going to have to hire a replacement CTO that actually knows how to scale a business. Um, I've had to do this in my company countless times, and it's caused me, you know, incredible amount of inner pain because you've got these people that joined, that ascended in the company with you, that love this company, that are so proud of what they've achieved, and then you've got to go and hire someone above them or that replaces them, and you've got to let them go or you've got to make them now report to someone else. And it's really, really hard, um, but it is absolutely inevitable if you uh, hire uh, junior people when you don't have a lot of money. And you just have to kind of toughen up and do it. But you also, I mean, the, the clever ones recognize that it's an awesome opportunity for their career to learn from someone that's done it before. Um, but hopefully you've hired people that, that are humble enough to appreciate that they don't know it all yet. Um, <laughs> like one of the other hard things uh, that comes with hiring uh, young people and starting very small is eventually, when you do hire better people, you need processes. You need to grow up as a company, and you need processes and systems and performance reviews and you know, management meetings and all these things that 
I hate, frankly, but you have to do because you're now a bigger company and that re that's required of you. And uh, there's a little part of you that feels that, that that Peter Pan side of you is now dead, but it is what is needed to kind of grow a company um, and is inevitable result of growing with uh, younger employees. And, uh, and mistakes will often happen. I mean, you hire junior people that have never done it before. Sometimes they're going to, you know, screw up. And, uh, and you have to be patient and understanding. And... Um, and, and that can be hard. I, I've seen a lot of um, uh, fellow entrepreneur friends of mine that have hired, again, junior people when they didn't have a lot of money, and then they get really, really angry when they screw up. And I'm like, well, of course they did. They, you need to mentor them, you need to be there with them, and you're going to have to expect that if you hire junior people that are not best of their, best of their breed yet, they're not going to always uh, be, uh, be perfect, and you just have to accept that. Um, and, uh, and, and you do. Um, so how have things changed with money? So now, you know, we've raised, we've now, we're now doing a Series C fundraise. We've raised, you know, quite a lot of money. Um, and there are some things that are, that are better. I can now sleep at night a little bit. Gosh, in my early days, I remember um, that first year, our, our technology service would, um, uh, it looks at, when, you, when you're on a website, it tracks when you click out of that site and click onto a product link and it helps you make money from that. But I remember in those early days when our server architecture was terrible, we would bring down like newspapers, like really important, I'm not going to say the name in case it comes out to them, but they were like national newspapers that ran our technology and for like two hours we killed every single one of their outbound links. Um, and so that was, that was a very unpleasant two hours of my life. And, you know, now that we've hired, you know, excellent people that know how to set up <laughs> redundancies and all sorts of uh, uh, necessary technical architecture, I can now sleep at nights a little bit more. A little bit more. Um, the other great thing that happens is that you hire people that are much smarter than you. And again, you have to be humble enough as a, as a leader to know that that's actually a really good thing. They're, it's awesome when you hire people that know a lot more than you do and that you, you know, I, I actually tell them, tell me, <laughs> tell me what you need to lead you because I can't actually tell you how to do your job. I can just tell you what the overall vision is and kind of what the expectation is, but everything else you need to tell me. Uh, and that's a, that's a really nice aspect of hiring uh, senior people that have done it before. The other unexpected, I, I thought it would be really hard to bring in senior people. Like, what if that would disrupt the culture, hiring these older people? <laughs> Our average age is now a much more sensible age. Um, but to my wonderful surprise, it's actually been a reason that people stay, because they're excited to work for someone that is senior and experienced, that can teach them something, and they now have a role model that they can aspire to. And if you hire those senior people well, like our VP sales and biz dev, our VP engineering, um, our VP marketing, these are people that now people want to work for, and they're actually um, yeah, a, a great um, piece of branding for our company. Um, and it's, it's an unexpected benefit that happens when you hire awesome senior leaders. But the focus on, the one thing that hasn't changed is that the focus on culture remains exactly the same. You know, we still are dogmatic about hiring people that are good cultural fits, and I still think day and night about how do I create an environment where people want to stay, where people want to work, where, where the values that I find important are perpetuated without me having to, to do it. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.